deeper board of Savannah allows for a record-setting number of mega ships and record-setting revenues. We can add 200 more containers for every foot. So for five feet that they're about to dredge out, that's a thousand containers per ship. That adds up to hundreds of thousands of containers on an annual basis to the state of Georgia. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought visits the bustling harbor where countless products begin their treks cross country and where the trade war could throw a wrench into a critical cog of the state's economy. Plus, the American Academy of Pediatrics has a new president-elect, Fayetteville's Dr. Sally Goza. I pledge as president to stand tall or as tall as I can at five feet, to be fierce and persistent and advocating for what is just and right for children. She'll share what she saw at children's detention centers at the border. All that and electric cars in the Savannah fleet after the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The American Academy of Pediatrics president-elect, Dr. Sarah Goza, is back at her practice in Georgia after visiting the U.S.-Mexico border and examining detention facilities where migrant children are held. The Fayetteville pediatrician and incoming president of the American Academy of Pediatrics joins us now on the line to tell us what and who she saw there. Good morning. Good morning. Dr. Goza, why did you visit the border now? The American Academy of Pediatrics has been concerned about what's happening at our border since about 2014 and have been urging uh, our government to do better down there. And we have been asking to tour the Custom and Border Facilities for about the last three years and had been um, had things set up and then they were all, most of the time canceled. So this was the first time we had been in in quite a few years. And this was a, a visit that was arranged when former Commissioner McAlini was in charge of Custom and Border Patrol with our our current past president, Colleen Kraft, and he had offered to, to have her tour the facilities. And so it happened to be on my watch and our current president, Kyle Yusuda's watch, that it was arranged, and that's how we ended up there at this point in time. So you, t- you toured two facilities where U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, CBP, by the way, people right. know it as, are holding children. Can you bring us to that moment when you first entered your first impressions? When we first entered, we, we were in a little anteroom and they offered us masks to wear um, because there's some flu there and um, we all refused. We said we're pediatricians, we're exposed to this every day. And when we they opened the door for us to go in, the first thing that hit me was the smell. Hmm. And it was a smell of urine, sweat, and, and feces all just kind of combined together. And as we walked into the first room, which is a series of 12 cells, I heard rustling to my left, and I looked over there, and it was a sea of silver. It was all the Mylar blankets, and there were young boys in there, the unaccompanied boys, and they were silent. There was not really any talking going on, and their faces were just flat. There was really no affect to them. And as we went into the bigger facility, it had the big four quadrants of the cages, as I call them, with the guard towers. Wait, you have to uh, stop. Cages. It's fencing. It's fencing that's just fenced out, and it's concrete floor with mats and mylar blankets in there. And the and the the, immig- the immigrant, the children and the families and the adults are in there, and they're divided by unaccompanied boys, unaccompanied girls, family units with the mothers, and family units with the fathers. Mm. And um, it, what really hit us there was that the everybody in there had almost bloodshot eyes, and they were bulging or what I used to call bug eyes. They were just wide open just from the stress of everything. 
like what's going to happen next. And the lights are on 24-7 for safety reasons, but they get no sense of day or night. It's just 24-7 light and just no expressions to their faces, just this flat affect. Were, were there they any interactions around. with the children or with the families? Um, I actually did have an interaction with a little boy who probably looked about 9 or 10, and he had a, a something up, up next to his eyes where he was pushing really hard, and another boy was trying to comfort him. So I walked over to the edge of the fence, and a Custom and Border Patrol officer came, came up to where I was. I, I kind of deviated from the tour a little bit. And um, he interpreted for me. I said, can you ask him why he's crying? And uh, he did. And the little boy said he had been with his father, but his father had been taken away to court that morning, I think. And they had moved him from the family unit area over to the unaccompanied minor area. And before his father left, because they didn't know what was going to happen, he gave the little boy a piece of paper with his aunt's name and phone number on it so that he would have somebody to go to in the States. Mm-hmm. And in the process of moving from one area to the next, the little boy had lost the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And he was he was devastated. He was terrified. He had no idea what he was going to do. That was the one thing his father had told him not to do. And uh, he, he was terrified, and I felt helpless because there was nothing I could do to say it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Did you meet any pediatricians who were working in the facilities? We did not see any pediatricians in the facilities. Um, we saw the the people that are working there, the loyal source people who are nurses and nurse practitioners and PAs, um, and they may have some medical people there, but there were no pediatricians anywhere in any, either of the two facilities we went to. Now, I'm told that a social worker there showed you drawings by children who had been held in detention, later released... So the- the drawings were when we we saw the drawings when we went to the respite center where the people when they're released from custom and border patrol they a lot of them are taken to the respite center to get hygiene products new clothes food and they're able to make their arrangements to get to their final destinations from the bus stop at the bus stop what did you see Our, in the drawings so the drawings were of 3 10 and 11 year olds um we did not meet these children the the uh, lady at the respite center the volunteer at the respite center had them um, and they, she had these canvases because this was her multi. She'd been at the respite center volunteering many times, and she brought markers and canvases and asked them to draw what it was like in the Custom and Border Patrol facilities. And that's what the drawings were. And they were all of cages, and there were people in in two of the three of them, and there were guards and towers. There was not a smile, uh, really no facial expressions even in the drawings. Mm. So uh, uh, images of being. It's clearly, I mean, I've looked at the drawings. They're just lines up and down. I mean, they're, they're right. just bars. They're cages. Yeah, they're cages. I'm speaking with Dr. Sarah Goza. She's a Fayetteville native. She's been a pediatrician in her hometown for more than 30 years and is, was recently elected president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She's back in Georgia after visiting facilities where migrant children are being held at the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, the CBP does say that it is just overrun with the volume of children. Uh, are officials trained to take care of children? Did you see any evidence of that? So as a pediatrician, first and foremost, I want to say that custom and border facilities are no place for any child. And and we as as a nation need to do make urgent changes so that that does not continue to happen, that they're there for as short of a time as they can be. And we need pediatricians in these facilities to make sure that children are being taken care of correctly and appropriately. So 
I, Custom and Border Patrol or law enforcement, they are not pediatricians. They are not child care providers. And so I, we truly believe keeping these children in these facilities for as short of a time as possible is the best thing we can do. And we do need pediatricians there. And we need humanitarian care being given. And there is a bill in the uh, House in D.C., the Ruiz bill, that would actually recommend do a lot of those things. It would give pediatricians unfettered access to these facilities. It would um, help give more humanitarian care and give the people the basics of the things that they need. The DHS, for their part, a senior health official, not on the record, by the way, uh, because they were not authorized to speak, um, did tell CNN that a border agent or law enforcement official administers a health questionnaire to every migrant, including how they're feeling, if they're taking any medications, if they have any symptoms of communicable diseases, such as mumps or the flu. W- what would you recommend as a more thorough or rigorous intake experience? So what we know is that children are not little adults. And so sometimes the symptoms that children have before they become very, very ill are very subtle. And so pediatricians are very well trained to look at a child and realize if they're healthy, if they're a little bit sick, or if they're a lot sick. And I do this every day in my office. You know, that's what we were trained to do. And so that's why we feel like that there should be somebody in pediatric experience looking at these children as they're coming through these facilities that knows those subtle changes. Because sometimes if you ask on a questionnaire, you don't necessarily get the right answer. And if you can look at these children and tell that they're, you know, tell that they're healthy or sick, then you're going to be much better off, which is where pediatric training and pediatric experience and expertise comes in. Well, your organization, the American Academy of Pediatrics, is on record as saying, just as you said, children should not be detained. Would you characterize these conditions as traumatic or, or these children as being exposed to trauma? Being in, a, in detention or in one of these facilities is definitely stressful. And it's it's very stressful in many levels. They're, the lights are on 24-7. They're sleeping on cold floors. They sometimes, you know, are separated from their the caregivers, the family that they came with. And so all of those things are things that we call adverse childhood events or experiences which contribute to what we what we call stress or toxic stress in children, which can change the architecture of children's brains. And so... We need to decrease that stress load on these children so that they do not have long-term consequences. And and we are concerned about the long-term consequences that we are causing in these children. Well, you are in a powerful position as the recently elected president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Among your stated priorities, vaccination, gun safety, reducing poverty. Just want to tie a thread here with immigration. There are a lot of people who oppose immigration because they suspect immigrants carry disease. Now we know from now a thousand reported cases of measles across the country, six here in Georgia, that the measles outbreaks begin with children who whose parents are skeptical or oppose vaccinating their children. So from a public health perspective, which is of a greater concern to you, migrant children getting shots or children in America getting shots? Really and truly, we need to keep at least 90 to 95% of our children in the United States vaccinated. That will help prevent disease. Uh, Migrant children or immigrant children actually get vaccines when they come into this country. Um, if if they if the unaccompanied children go to the um, ORR facilities, they are caught up to date on their vaccines. Most of the children 
lot of children come with vaccine records that they've already been vaccinated in their home country. So um, it really and truly, we just need to make sure that all children, no matter where they come from, whether they were born here or come here from somewhere else, that we have at least 95% coverage of vaccines in most in every area so that we can have that public health um, buffer, the, as we call the herd immunity. Meaning uh, that, that enough people in the herd are vaccinated Correct. that the disease Correct. doesn't spread. Another one of your top priorities, reducing poverty. Now, Fayetteville, where you practice, about half an hour south of Atlanta Airport, um, in that same county of Peachtree City, where median household income, there's more insured people, lower rate of disability and poverty than many other places in the, in the state. How does that contrast reveal itself in your work? I actually work in our Fayetteville office. And I see patients from um, all of the South Metro area counties, from South Fulton County, Clayton County, Henry County, Spalding County, Pike County, um, even some from Troop County. So I actually have a much broader um, draw than just Fayette County. And so I do see the effects of poverty in my office every day. Um, and it's, it's pretty heart-wrenching when you see these children who you know will have a harder time than other children to succeed in this world. It's very sad. I have a pediatrician friend who says that he can tell if a child's going to succeed in life by the zip code they're born into. Mm. And I have promised that, that will, we will make a change or help make a change, start the change, so that he will have to eat those words someday. Well, let's hope that's true. Um, and what is your what what do you would you say is your first priority as the incoming president of the American Association of Pediatrics? There are a lot of priorities. That's the hard part is knowing which one is going to be my my first priority. I I do believe that we have to address poverty. We have to address bias and discrimination that's tearing our country apart. And we have to address the immigration issues. That what's happening to our children at the, to children at the border and access to care. And to me, those are all a continuum of the same thing. What has somebody said to you? You know, you're the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Are these children our children? So we are the American Academy of Pediatrics because of where we're based, but we are dedicated to the health and well-being of all children. They are all our children. Dr. Goza, thank you so much and congratulations on your new well, position. Thank you. Thank you. Fayetteville native Dr. Sarah Goza, president elect of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Stay with us. There's more on Second Thought coming up after a short break. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is On Second Thought from GPB. Transportation, trucks, trains, planes, and automobiles are a major source of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. Electric vehicles offer a less polluting alternative, that and reduce fuel costs are strong selling points. Limited battery range is not. But shorter distances and those savings work for local governments, many of them. Last month, Savannah added two new electric cars to its city fleet. Nick Defley is director of Savannah's Office of Sustainability and joins us from GPB's Savannah studio. Nick, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. So this process of adding electric cars to the fleet really began in 2016 via community meetings and engagement. What did you hear from residents? Yeah, so uh, we started a strategic plan with a number of town hall meetings across all of our districts, and an overwhelming comment that kept coming through was, we want more efficient government, we want more 
focus on carbon emissions. We want to uh, reduce the impact on carbon emissions in our city operations and just out in the community. So um, electric vehicles became one of those many priorities uh, for our city fleet that we started to consider and, and ultimately adopt by the city council. Well, these public forums provided a foundation for what you called Savannah Forward, a strategic plan. Five pillars on this plan, one being good governance. How does using electric cars fall under good governance? Well, you know, of course, everything we do is taxpayer funded. So um, right off the bat, what we want to do is make sure that we are providing the most efficient operations we can, whether it's in our... um, you know, sanitation department, our water services department, uh, transportation, anything. So uh, automatically we want to be the most efficient we can be. Electric vehicles certainly fall into that range because uh, we we have a significant fleet now and we are trying to make that fleet more economically viable and uh, reduce the long-term maintenance costs for ourselves as well as reduce that carbon footprint. So ultimately, we're accountable to the public, and we want to make sure that we are doing the best with those dollars. There are other U.S. cities have added electric vehicles to their fleets, including Atlanta and Cobb County. Did you work with the other municipalities and learn about best practices? Yeah, we certainly did. We did quite a bit of case study, um, and right now we're still kind of in a pilot project phase to see how it works for Savannah, but Cobb County was certainly one of those that we spoke with their fleet uh, frequently. They also have leased a number of electric vehicles over time for their fleet, and so we are slowly moving in that same direction, kind of carefully studying as we go to make sure that the that it really pencils out economically and from a carbon footprint standpoint. Well, tell me about that decision to lease. You work with Georgia Power to evaluate the cost-benefit analysis and collecting data. What did you find? Uh, well, so yeah, that was a really interesting program. It's called Will It Work with Georgia Power, and they essentially put a little computer on our existing gasoline-powered vehicle, and specifically we looked at... Uh, some of our vehicles that our parking attendants use downtown who are, you know, as you can imagine, probably not driving that many miles per day, but they're constantly moving and and within a few square mile area Mm -hmm. Um, and then a lot of idle time. So we hooked up a computer to that one through Georgia Power as well as we had the chance to uh, pilot a Nissan Leaf at the time and do that same computer analysis to our use patterns to see which one really made the most sense, and was it viable to start switching to electric vehicles? Yeah, so uh, what is the cost if we look at the cost-benefit analysis? Electric cars run in the mid, what, 20,000s, way up to, you know, the high-end Tesla. How do do you find the right price range for the city's needs? Well, uh, you know, obviously, as much as we would all love to have Teslas for our electric vehicles, that's not going to happen. I can imagine the response of the public if the (laughs) parking attendants were driving Teslas. Right, right. Uh, But... You know, we really looked at specifications for how many miles we really needed on a on a charge, um, as well as right now, since it's a pilot project, we and we see battery life technologies still changing pretty significantly. So we wanted to make sure that we weren't uh, actually purchasing these vehicles right up front; that we're leasing them to give some time for us to learn uh, how we operate with them and how how it folds into our program, but also um, making sure that we're not buying into something that will soon be changing and increasing capacity in a few years so that we're not stuck with uh, just one type of vehicle. Yeah, that, that does mean that you need charging stations. Are Is that part yeah. of the plan to actually build charging stations also on the city's dime? Yeah, uh, it certainly is. There's actually a lot of... Uh, uh, potential for public-private partnership in some of that charging infrastructure as well. But currently, the city has five public parking garages that have um, a total of 20 electric vehicle charging stations in them. 
and then we have a few on street as well. So while that is by no means where we want to be, um, we're trying to kind of keep pace with how the market is shifting as well. We don't want to oversaturate with chargers yet. We want to kind of step that in as we start seeing more electric vehicles on the road, not just the city of Savannah fleet, but also the public and the visitors to Savannah. What is the range currently of the Nissan Leaf? Uh, I think the newest one that we have is just about 200 miles on one charge. Mm -hmm. And so what we'll what we plan to do is use uh, charging stations in our public garages overnight to charge our city vehicles when we don't really have public on those same units. Now the plan that sustainability plan or Savannah Forward rather did not require all electric vehicles but more fuel efficient cars. Why did you make the decision to go electric? Uh, you know, I just kind of figured go big or go home. I mm -hmm. didn't want to uh, step into hybrid first and then electric. Uh, there was a lot of focus in the conversation when we developed the plan uh, by our council to really start reducing carbon emissions. And so that was a key focus of this while it was also, you know, efficient dollars spent and, and good government. Um, and I felt like it was time. We had electric vehicle chargers for the public, but the city of Savannah really had not delved into that too much yet. So this was a nice start. And I think, you know, as we look at the different vehicles we have and their different purposes, you know, we've got police cruisers, we've got uh, code compliance vehicles, parking vehicles, and others, pickup trucks. Uh, we want to make sure that we're kind of aligning. Perhaps a hybrid is better in one case for a certain type of vehicle than an electric car. So we're going to continue to kind of balance that. How long? I know you said that you're leasing the Leafs and mm -hmm. figuring out, you know, how much their battery life or their technology changes. How long do you reckon it will take to reap the benefits, you know, making that initial investment to getting paid back in lower operating costs? Uh, that's a good question. I think that's one of the things we're still trying to figure out. Our goal is to convert about 15% of our vehicle fleet to more fuel efficient, possibly electric vehicles by 2023. And uh, right now, we are trying to evaluate these first two to, to get a better sense of that. Uh, what we do know is it's going to reduce over the lifetime of those vehicles here with us, uh, our carbon footprint, just with those two vehicles by about uh, 10 tons per, per vehicle, or for the two vehicles. How many vehicles in the fleet altogether, in the city's fleet? Of the ones that are appropriate for conversion, so kind of more light-duty vehicles, because we've got a number of very heavy-duty vehicles that we can't think about converting to electric, but we've got about 300 for sure, and we, as we kind of refine that list a little more, it may go up or down a little bit. Nick Duffley is with us. He's Sustainability Director for the City of Savannah, which just added two electric vehicles to its fleet. And Nick, what was, the, of the benefits, you know, what was the biggest motivation? Was it cost savings, reduced emissions, noise, for you and for Savannah residents, mm -hmm. do you think? Mm -hmm. You know, I think for Savannah residents, and certainly for myself, uh, there's a big component on the environmental uh, preservation piece and just uh, creating a healthier community. We, we have a very vibrant downtown and historic district, and uh, all of Savannah is really starting to, to progress with uh, development and transportation. So we knew that we didn't want to get any more congested with carbon emissions from our vehicles that we have downtown. So this is a way to really start to reduce that. I think that certainly first came from the community. So I have to say I'm very proud and happy that our residents felt that that was, that was something that was a priority for them. And then I have to hand it to the council as well because they also acknowledge carbon emissions specifically as something that they wanted to reduce. But again, you know, if we have less tailpipes emitting carbon on our streets, that's cleaner air. Uh, less noise pollution as well with electric vehicles. They're certainly a little quieter. So 
um, with all the tourists and, and residents that we have in Savannah, it's just uh, one more step that we can make towards building a healthier and more resilient community. Well, these vehicles are still new to the fleet. Has there been any trouble in implementing them, you know, to retraining employees, anything else? Not yet. No, actually, um, so we had a number of parking attendants who all wanted to to use the, the LEAF as their main vehicle, and they actually had to have a drawing for it. Uh, only two people got to to use the vehicles on a regular basis, so they feel like they're the lucky ones right now. But <laughs> everyone loves the vehicle. I mean, it's got additional features that some of our previous vehicles haven't had, uh, and it's, of course, newer. Um, from a vehicle maintenance standpoint, we are still working through that. You know, we have our own vehicle maintenance crew, and over time they will be learning how to uh, really get more into the details of maintaining electric vehicles. But essentially right now, I mean, we're talking about brakes, tires, windshield washer fluid. Um, so we don't have the same maintenance costs as we would have with an internal combustion engine. Any advice for other Georgia municipalities or counties that may be considering electric vehicles? Uh, you know, I would just say Georgia Power was a great partner with the Will at Work program. Uh, so if, if, you know, making those data des data driven decisions that certainly our elected officials want to see, uh, that was made very easy. And then after that, uh, just jump in and try it. There's it's not really that much of a cost differential up front, and then you can really get a sense of how much more carbon emissions you're saving and, and some of the long-term deferred maintenance costs that um, we don't have to incur anymore. Nick Duffley, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Nick is Sustainability Director for the City of Savannah, which, as we said, just added two electric vehicles to its fleet. Tariffs and trade negotiations are being closely watched after President Trump's meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. One Georgia industry tracking the ongoing talks? Shipping. The Trump administration has threatened a 25% tariff on ship-to-shore cranes. The Georgia Ports Authority is ordering six new cranes at a cost of $70 million. Its executive director and Georgia's U.S. senators are asking the White House to rethink taxing them. The cranes are just one piece of a $2.5 billion expansion at the ports. That investment is already paying off, with a 30% trade increase in volume in recent years. That makes Georgia's port one of the fastest growing in the U.S., and those record-breaking investments are bringing record-setting revenue. The Ports Authority calculates its annual economic activity at $84 billion. We wanted to see for ourselves how the Savannah Harbor Expansion Project is causing shipping profits to skyrocket. So, on Second Thought, senior producer Amy Kiley visited the Georgia Ports Authority in Savannah and spoke with COO Edward McCarthy. He started with a look beneath the waves, where the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is deepening the Savannah Harbor from 42 feet to 47. The federal government is picking up about three-quarters of the cost for the almost billion-dollar project. The rest is on the state. For every foot that the Army Corps can deepen the river, we can add 200 more containers. So for five feet that they're about to dredge out, that's 1,000 containers per ship. That adds up to hundreds of thousands of containers on an annual basis to the state of Georgia. 
Machinery moves one of those shipping containers, just as McCarthy mentions them. A ship size is measured by how many containers it can hold, and that increment is called a TEU, or 20-foot equivalent unit. Old school ships held fewer than 100 TEU. The expansion has opened the way for mega ships that hold 14,000. So, deeper harbor, bigger ships, bigger ships, more cargo, more cargo, more profit. But as anyone who's ever moved knows, once you arrive, you have to unpack. And that's where those ship-to-shore cranes come in. At six stories tall, the ones built for megaships soar above the harbor, and their booms can reach hundreds of feet higher. A daunting ride up a rickety metal elevator provides access to the top of one of the cranes, and a bird's-eye view of how cranes unload cargo that comes in on ships. We're about 160 feet in the air right now. We're on top of crane number 36. So what you're seeing is the ship-to-shore crane landing the spreader bar on top of the hatch cover and lifting that 30-ton piece of metal back to the ship to cover up the below deck of the ship so we can load containers on top of it. The dredged Savannah Harbor will be able to hold six megaships at once. Time is money, so the Ports Authority plans to have 37 cranes big enough to unload their goods and allow more ships to pass through the port on a given day. The cranes transfer the shipping containers to a more typical mode of transportation. Semi-trucks carry the cargo the next leg. Some head to the dozens of warehouses that have sprung up near the port. Others transport goods across the nation's highways and sometimes clog those roadways. GDOT is rebuilding the I-16, I-95 interchange near the ports to ease a bottleneck there. It's also widening I-16, which runs from Savannah to Macon. Another plan is to get some of those trucks off the road altogether. A mega rail hub is under construction near the port. It's expected to double the amount of cargo that leaves there by train. It'll have 18 tracks running 180,000 feet. The hub will accommodate unit trains, which span more than 10,000 feet. This recording of a unit train comes from a YouTube video posted by someone called Illinois Valley Railfan. But it'll soon be easy to hear these trains in person near the port of Savannah. By 2020, the new hub will start sending out the port's cargo on the Mason Mega Rail Line. We have a $200 million project that we're doing to link the two railroads together, reaching beyond Atlanta. Atlanta is a huge hub, but our goal is to reach Memphis, to reach Chicago, and maybe even Kansas City. So here's why Ports Authority COO Andrew McCarthy says the Savannah Harbor expansion is driving record profits. Deeper water, again, allowing for bigger ships. And those ships carry more goods and improved rail and truck routes get those goods to consumers faster. In fairness, not everyone is on board with the expansion of the ports. Environmentalists project that these huge ships in the harbor will harm area wetlands and fish. Well, despite those concerns, there's already talk of expanding even more. Shipbuilders have begun constructing vessels that top 21,000 TEU, and already the Georgia Ports Authority is already considering whether they might someday call at the Port of Savannah. Our thanks to senior producer Amy Kiley for gathering sound at the Port of Savannah.
From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Writer and director Lula Wong found a fascinating family as a subject for her second film, Her Own Family. The Farewell follows her Chinese family's decision not to tell their beloved matriarch that she's been diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. Their complicity in the secret reveals truths about their relationships to each other. Comedian Aquafina plays the main character, Billy, who resists their conspiracy to shield her grandmother from the truth. The Farewell recently opened in New York and L.A. Its release date for wider audiences is July 12th. But the story may already sound familiar to you. Lulu told it herself in an episode of This American Life. And her movie kicked off the Atlanta Film Festival this spring. That's when I caught up with the writer and director and asked about the true story that inspired the project. It was in 2013. Uh, I was actually in post-production on my first feature when this happened. And my first film was a screwball romantic comedy. And then um, this happened in my real life. And I thought, this is a real screwball setup. And I was really sad, but it was also uh, just really ridiculous. And when did you decide that you wanted to tell it? First, you did it for This American Life. Yeah, um, as I was going through it, I think that there, I had, I started to have this notion of I need to share this with people, even if it's just with friends, because the the story and some of the situations I was in felt so insane, um, and uh, I didn't know how to make it as a film, you know, frankly, because I wanted to keep the casting authentic. I wanted to do uh, part of it in Chinese language. And uh, but yet I wanted to make it as an American film, as an American story. So I had a hard time uh, getting it set up initially. And uh, it wasn't until I did the story with This American Life that I was uh, finally able to find the right producers. And I remember that because you taped a lot of the conversations, audio of phone calls that you had with your parents or real life situations. And there's this elaborate ruse that you your family comes up with, really, um, telling Nai Nai. Uh, your grandmother that um, everybody's avoiding telling her that she's expected to live at that time only a couple of months. This is also, of course, the central tension of the film. Mm -hmm. And Billy is set up as the outsider in a way in this conversation. She wants to tell the truth. It's something you dealt with yourself. Here is an excerpt from your story with This American Life when you're talking with your mom about this dilemma. I'm pretty sure a lot of other Americans would feel the way that I felt that it, somebody's going to die, it's their right to know. Yeah, and uh, by the way, I think that's not your business. You not, you not live with her, and so... Okay, but do you understand where I was coming from? Do you understand why I was conflicted? Yeah, I know, but that's China. That's a different world. So we find out, I think that Nine, if, if I'm remembering right, she didn't tell her own husband. Exactly. That he was dying when he was dying. I'm sorry to laugh, but it is just so insane in a way. So help us understand what sounds like a pretty deep cultural divide about that awareness of death in Chinese and American culture. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure how much of it is um, just so deeply ingrained. There's obviously all of these philosophical reasons to back why they make this decision, but uh, I've, I've come to learn that so many people do it that it also is just, uh, in a way, um, an unspoken, like an obvious truth uh, to the culture. And 
it wasn't in a way until I started questioning why they were doing it that they had to even um, reflect on why do we do this. And they dug really deep and, you know, different people in the family told me different things and it all makes sense from their point, point of view. Um, but it definitely is just a, interesting, the assumptions that we make, that we carry over through history, through culture, through rituals and traditions. And sometimes we think about them and sometimes we don't. And the, the, all of those things just come so clear in the movie, you know, the rituals and traditions. So you set up this idea that everybody's going to come to your cousin's wedding in China. This is their excuse for all coming together to see Nai Nai, basically. But okay, so This American Life, they rigidly fact check, mm -hmm. right? Because they don't, this is, they want to make sure that stories are true. But for you, you were writing your own screenplay. You could tell any kind of story here. Mm -hmm. Was there any part that you thought, I'm going to do this differently than it happened in real life? You know, making a film is such a different beast than uh, doing a, a, a fact-based story. And I think in some ways it's even more challenging because when people know it's journalism, when it's fact-based, it's easy for them to believe that this is true, and in, immediately they're engaged. Um, but with a movie, people just think of Hollywood, they think of actors, they think of uh, this facade. And so even if you are depicting things that are real, there's a level of skepticism that audiences bring. And then when you do add actors uh, and not real locations like sets and things like that, um, the danger can be that it contributes to this this sense of disbelief. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. really happening. I can imagine a pitch here. <laughs> so there's this family. They're not telling their... You know, it almost sounds like, I don't know, an old sitcom or something like exactly. that. Exactly. And yeah. how do you make it still feel really grounded and feel believable? I mean, we open the film with uh, a line that says that it's based on an actual lie. But people who have seen the film... Even having seen that line, by the end, time they get to the end, still don't they forget that this is a real story. And so it was definitely challenging to, you know, figure out what are the moments and the pieces that I wanted to stay true to on a, in a factual way. And what are the ways that I um, could depict the truth uh, even better by not sticking to facts. One of the truths is that your relationship with your grandmother is really close. Mm -hmm. yeah, and you set up that bond with Billy and Nai Nai right from the get-go. They have these long phone conversations. How do you put that kind of dynamic into a script? Uh, well, you know, I think uh, that I put a lot of consideration into that because I do think that it's important for people to know that um, two people can have this kind of a, a bond, even if they're not seeing each other all the time, even if they're of two different generations. And I think the, the, the sort of banter between the two people was really important to me and keeping the authenticity of that dialogue mm -hmm. um, to yeah to capture this relationship that isn't always perfect it isn't uh, what you think about a grandma who just bakes you cookies and all of that um, she's really open with you yeah she's really direct with you she's open with everyone you know that's the kind of she's uh, a person that she is so and and there's a lot of humor in that because you realize oh she's not just somebody's grandmother somebody's mother but she is a woman and she at one time was a young woman and had uh, loves of her own and dreams of her own and disappointments of her own so I wanted to make sure that was captured. How did you help develop that bond between Aquafina, who plays the character Billy, which is essentially you, and Shujan Zhao, who plays Nai Nai in the film? 
the bond between Aquafina and Zhao was immediate because Aquafina was raised by her Chinese grandmother, and Zhao has grandchildren of her own. And so it's so easy to just bring that level of love、uh, and project it into this other person who you know is、uh, somebody else's granddaughter and somebody else's grandmother. And in many ways. Uh, Billy is everybody's granddaughter, and Zhao is everybody's grandmother. And when I was casting,、um, that's what I was looking for: was both the specificity of somebody who could play my grandmother's, you know, who has very specific traits, but was also someone who felt universal to everybody and how they see their grandmother. I'm speaking with Lulu Wang, writer and director of *The Farewell*, which kicked off the Atlanta Film Festival this year and will be released to wider audiences this weekend. Aquafina, as she mentioned, is starring in the film. She is best known as a comedian. So, why put her in this pretty dramatic role? Well,、uh, she sent in a self tape.、Um, she said, "You know, I really want to do this role, and I know that I my resume doesn't say that I'm the most obvious person. But when she sent in that self tape, I knew immediately that she was the one. There was just no facade there. She felt like the character." Well, the farewell also deals with complicated feelings of leaving home、mm -hmm. and then returning to home.、Uh, that isn't quite the same for Billy, the the character, and and for her parents certainly, and her uncles and extended family. How does Billy handle going back to China after being in the U.S. for so long? Yeah, I think Billy has a hard time. I, you know, it's um and. I relate to this, of course, but I think many people、um, who are immigrants,、um, regardless of what age they came over to the U.S. at,、uh, there's a sense that you, you know, you're missing something. But then you go back and you also realize, wait, actually, I don't fit in here anymore.、Mm. Um, and so that's that's what she learns quickly: is that even though the love is there and the bond is there, she starts to see how different she is.、Um, not. You know, we see fish out of water stories all the time, and that's often represented by、um, how people appear physically. If you're blonde and blue-eyed in an Asian country, it's quite obvious you're a fish out of water.、Um, but what does it feel like when you actually look like everyone, and everyone expects you to be like them, and you're not? And、um, all of the expectations that also go along with it, you know, because. Um, the main reason her parents immigrated is to give her a better life. And if you are at a stage of your life where you're questioning whether or not you are successful and you're doing all the things that you should be doing, or you feel that you're somehow a disappointment,、um, she's bringing all of that baggage as well back to China, where she wants her grandma to be proud of her and to feel that the sacrifice of her leaving and them not spending their lives together was worthwhile.、Yeah. And the truth is, she doesn't know that that. That's true. Yeah, that I think is one of the great hanging things in the film, and and you know the uncles and parents they feel guilty、mm -hmm. about having left China for Japan in this case in the United States, but also really grapples with a lot of emotional responses to grief and how personalities and cultural expectations play into grieving,、mm -hmm. and I think there's a question here of like, is there a right way to grieve? Because everybody's got their own way,、mm -hmm. and is that what you're we're getting at? That there is no right way. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and part of that is cultural. I think that uh, culture and gender and, you know, all apply to how you grieve or how you feel you're expected to grieve um, versus your own personality. And certainly, I think that if there's an expectation that you have to grieve in a very public way, but you tend to be very private or um, certain cultures expect stoicism, whereas other cultures expect the opposite. Of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Rending the garments. And I do, and in fact, I think I remember from the This American Life story that people get hired to be mourners at mm-hmm, funerals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's in the movie as well, um, a little bit of that. But, um, but yeah, and so I think that um, trying to balance the you know the expectation from your family of how you should be grieving when also you're not supposed to be grieving because this is a secret and then wanting to grieve and not being allowed to grieve and so yeah all of those tricky uh things are what is the underlying tension for billy well i think what that that's what makes it sort of you know comic and tragic in many different places often in the same scene Mm -hmm. quite honestly like at the end of the wedding i'm not going to give any of this away but how did you find that balance, that tone of the comic and the tragic? Um, you know, I, I never direct my actors towards the comedy. I always feel that like what's most important is my actors are what grounds the scene, the performances. And so I direct them towards what's real. Um, and for example, there's a very emotional scene with the cousin and uh, he actually got very, very drunk in real life. He's like, in order to do this scene, I'm going to go drink. I was like, all right, great, go for it. Uh, and then he came to me and he's like, director, are we ready to shoot yet? Because I'm ready. I'm ready. I was like, just hold it. We're not ready yet. We're not ready. Um, for, so for him, it was very real. He also is very close with his grandmother, um, that 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 um, actor. And so that's great. You know, I have the the truthful emotion from the actor, but I love to create a situation um, where the situational comedy shows you the absurdity mm-hmm. um, while at the same time you're still maintaining empathy for the character that's in the scene. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. It's almost like you said you d- didn't direct him toward the comedy, but it's just inherently funny. Yeah. <laughs> in some kind of way. So this is your second feature. Why did this story feel like the next right? one to tell. Um, yeah, like I was saying before, my first movie was a... Posthumous was the name. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, Posthumous was a screwball romantic comedy. And this story is also a screwball of sorts. And I wanted to see if I could capture what I love about screwballs, but in a way that was also authentic to life and um, wasn't necessarily uh, boxed in by a specific genre. Um, But just to see how there are screwball situations everywhere in our lives and um, be able to balance uh, sort of the joy and the pathos because I think that in life, uh, joy and grief are so closely knit and, um, and that was the territory that I wanted to explore. The film did premiere at Sundance this year. A lot of praise for Aquafina's performance as Billy. And people found a connection to the story in very profound ways. Here is Aquafina. This is during the Sundance Film Festival sharing some of the responses she heard from the film. There were a couple people that came up to me also with tears in their eyes hours after the movie saying, like, we just did this to my grandpa. I just came back from China. I just buried my grandma. And and these people, like, they, they can't hold in their emotions and it resonates with them in in such a strong, like deep way. 
you know, movies like this need to exist. And it's like, no matter what, how broad the story goes, I mean, it, it, it resonates for sure. How how's your family responded? I mean, they are the basis for this. Uh, I think they're just really proud that um, that that I made it, and also that people are responding to it. Because um, I remember when I was working on the film and the script, and at one point I had my dad read it, and he's like, "Yeah, this is what happened, but is this interesting? <laughs> well, you think why would anyone give you money to make this? You know?" And um, it was so moving because to him it's just every day, and he's a common you know, person, and he doesn't feel like um, he's worthy of the screen, of, of the big screen, you know, and my great aunt, who plays herself in the movie, felt that same way when I wanted to cast her, and she kept saying, uh, but what if my face ruins your movie, mm -hmm. and I have a fat face, and, you know, kind of the self-deprecating humor, and I wanted to show her that she is worthy of a, a big screen, and she is a movie star in her own right, and so... Um, that's really exciting that, that uh, something so simple as one family story can resonate because this family is all of our families and their grief is all of our grief. Malulu Wong, congratulations. Thank you so much. And thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. Writer and director Lula Wong, her film The Farewell recently had its New York and L.A. premieres and will be released for a wider audience beginning this Friday, July 12th. That's our show for today. On Second Thought is produced by Jake Troyer, Amelia Brock, Bram Sable-Smith, and Raven Taylor. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer, Don Smith, our dean of grammar. Our intern is Allison Kraussman, and Amy Kiley is senior producer. Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for joining us, and come back again tomorrow for more of On Second Thought.